we read from Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 8, please say. Hebrews 2, verse 5. It's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for You made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honor, and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor. Suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, he was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. For Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, Here am I, and the children God has given me. Since the children are flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels who helps, but Abraham. Um, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being One of the things I love about the EU is that students and staff lead together. And so you, you experienced that a moment ago when we, that music played while you were filling out EU Connect.me because that music was created by a particular student back in the day, Callum Henderson, and he's gone on to do many other things for the Lord. He works for the Crusader Union. But uh, that little ditty just won't die. <laughs> no matter who tries to kill it, it comes back by just sheer weight of sort of the people's voice. So... What I love about the EU is that as a student, you can have a real impact. Some, some impacts might be more significant than others. Uh, it'd be helpful if you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have a Bible app on your phone, if you can just go to that little uh, URL there, tiny.cc slash pmreading, and that will always take you to the particular Bible reading that we're using today. Today it'll take you to Hebrews chapter 2. You can call it up on your phone. That might be helpful for you as well as we go through Uh, On the weekend, I went and saw the latest Marvel movie, (laughs) Captain Marvel. Who's seen it already? Who plans to see it soon? Who has no idea what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yet another Marvel movie, and uh, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. A fantastic female lead, great story. It was fun to watch, everything. It was great. Um, And the thing is... They're just all the same. (laughs) That doesn't make it bad to go and watch. We love going to watch it because we all love watching a great salvation story. And every single Marvel movie, it's always just a salvation story. 
Someone is getting saved, usually the planet Earth. Someone is getting saved, and here it was again, the latest version of another salvation. And we love it. We love a salvation story. A good salvation story is always enjoyable to watch. I wonder what it's like to be in. I wonder what it's like to be the person who's saved in an actual salvation story, in real life. I wonder what that's like. Maybe you've actually had a real-life sort of moment of salvation. Maybe you were swimming off a beach somewhere and got caught in a rip and you actually had to stick up your hand. Is it stick up your hand now? Now it's stick up a fist, I think, isn't it now? You st- no one knows. Okay, well, I hope you don't, I hope you don't have trouble on a beach. Um, but you stick up, stick up your hand and had to be... Maybe you've actually been saved like that or maybe you've been lost in the bush and it actually got a bit scary and had to get... I don't know whether you've been the object of a salvation story but I imagine that the emotions that go with that are pretty intense. Well, today what we're talking about as we look at this next section of Hebrews is we're talking about a great salvation story. What the writer to the Hebrews describes as such a great salvation. And the crazy thing is about this salvation story is that you're in it. You're actually the object of this astounding salvation story. You don't have to imagine what it's like because you're in one. You're in such a great salvation story. That's what we're going to dig into today as we look at what the writer to the Hebrews talks about when he talks about Jesus. And so if you've got your Bible there, let's have a bit of a look. We're going to kick in at chapter 2. And you'll notice in the very first couple of verses... There's, if you've got the Bible in front of you, there's a bit of a quotation, sort of in poetry form, sort of indented a little bit, formatted in your Bible in verses 6 and 7. And that's because the writer starts by quoting Psalm 8. And I've just laid it out for you here just to sort of make the quotation a bit clearer. He describes here in this Psalm, by quoting this Psalm, he describes what I've called a trajectory. Now, maybe you sort of got out of science as quick as you could at the end of year 10 and never sort of have let it sully your mind again. But a trajectory is like, you know, a path of flight, right? Here is a trajectory described in this couple of verses out of this psalm. So let me read it. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? That's the introduction then the trajectory is described. You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and then the second part of the trajectory is described. You have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. How can I tell that there's a trajectory there? Well, in the first part, he's made a little lower than the angels, but in the second part, everything is subjected under his feet. There's a reversal that's taking place in the very verse. Does that make sense? So there's a trajectory here, or if because you like diagrams, because who doesn't like diagrams? Here's a diagram. What we've seen so far in the book of Hebrews is a description of the Son, S-O-N, the Son of God, who is described earlier, we saw, as the very radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's very being. This is who the Son is. He is God himself. But what does this verse tell us? You have made the Son of Man a little lower than the angels. He comes as the person of Jesus Christ. This Son, B 
becomes the person Jesus, made for a little while lower than the angels. But then the, the psalm went on. But now we see him crowned with glory and honour, with everything under his feet. Or as we'll go on to see, he's been made a merciful and faithful high priest. Have a look then at how the writer sort of explains this psalm. Now that I've sort of mapped it out for you, you can sort of track that if you're taking notes as we read through some of these verses. Have a look then halfway through verse 8. The writer says, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. That is, he's saying, just to make clear that whereas he was made lower than the angels, which if you've been following along for the last couple of weeks, you know that was a big issue for these people who were receiving this letter, is, you know, the angels, but should we listen to the angels because God spoke through the angels and giving the Old Testament law? The writer's saying, no, no, you need to speak to the Son because the Son is greater than the angels. And he's acknowledging here, yes, for a while, the Son was made a little lower than the angels, but now... God has exalted him, put everything under his feet and left nothing out of that picture, including, that is, the angels have been placed under him. Then he says, yet at present we do not see everything subjected to him. But, he says, we see Jesus, to make clear who we're talking about when we're talking about the Son, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So here's the trajectory of the Son. The Son, God, the Eternal Son, who becomes the man Jesus Christ, who then is, through his death and resurrection, exalted back again to glory and honour. And you'll notice that the writer talks about, particularly there in verse 9, his death. Now the two things here at the end of verse 9 that are a bit tricky, which are worth looking at. So this is where we're going to dig in. We see him now crowned with glory and honour, we read, because he suffered death. Now, get your head around that. He was made a little lower than the angels, then crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Why, why is he crowned with glory and honour now because he suffered death? What's, why is that part of the picture of him now being... How does that work? And then he adds another little bit, which doesn't really explain it, just sort of adds to the confusion a little at this point. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, the key to unwrapping what's going on in the writer's mind here is that last little phrase, for everyone. Turns out that this is a trajectory, not just for Jesus. Turns out that this is a trajectory for everyone. This is a trajectory for you, this is your great salvation story. This trajectory. Now, you haven't started up in the top left corner, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his very being. I mean, you're an impressive person and all, but that's not you. <laughs> you start where I start. We start down in humanity. And the Son was made like us, that he might draw all of us to glory and honour. That's the salvation story, being drawn to glory and honour. Now, let's, let's have a look at how he describes that. Verse 10, he says, For in bringing many sons, literally he uses the word sons, he means obviously sons and daughters, but the word son is significant here because who are we talking about? Who set the trajectory? It's the son. So you can understand why he's using the word sons here, but he means all sons and daughters. In bringing many sons to glory... 
It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So here's his argument. God wants this great salvation story to apply to all. He wants to save everyone, bring everyone to glory. He says it was appropriate that God make his son perfect through suffering. Why? Because that's where we are. That's where we are. The realm of suffering. The experience and world infected by sin. And so it was appropriate that God make the author of our salvation story perfect through the experience of suffering. Have a look then. Verse 11. For both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So he's saying Jesus, the Son becomes Jesus, shares our humanity. Jump down to verse 14. He continues in the same vein. Since therefore the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The picture here in verse 10, uh, sorry, in verse uh, 14, 15, explains to us why Jesus' death was necessary in order to save you and me. The reason is because, it says there, that he needed to destroy him who holds the power of death, the devil. Now let's think about that for a moment. It says here that Jesus destroyed the devil. The devil is real. The Bible affirms that the devil is a real spiritual being, but the Bible also affirms that the devil still prowls around like a roaring lion. He's nothing for Christians to be afraid of because we're told also in the Bible, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So, you know, he's not that scary, but he prowls around looking for someone to devour. But here we're told he destroyed the devil. Well, clearly the devil's not yet destroyed. He will one day finally when Jesus returns. What's going on here is he's destroyed the devil's power. He's destroyed the devil's power for those who trust in Jesus. How has he done that? Well, you need to think about what power does the devil have? The the devil doesn't actually have power of life and death. If you know your Old Testament, you might remember the story of Job, how um, the devil wanted to sort of really put Job under pressure but he was constrained by the boundaries that the one true living God set. He, you can do this, but you can't do this to Job. The devil does not have power of life and death. Only God, the one true living God, has power of life and death. So what does it mean here? How does the devil have the power of death? Well, he has, he has power by virtue of his lies. What the devil does is tells lies. He tells lies to you and lies to me, lies to our world, to get us to not trust the one true living God, to not follow God's ways and God's words, and instead to follow his untruth, to follow his lies. And the consequence of those lies is, well, it's death. Because when we reject God's words and his ways, we're actually saying to God, get stuffed, I don't want you to be treated, I'm not going to treat you as God. And the right consequence for that from the Genesis chapter 3 is death. 
And so the power of the devil lies in the lies that he tells. And the lies are attractive to our sinful natures. And so we, we go after the lies because we prefer his lies to God's wise truth. That's where his power lies. How did Jesus destroy the devil's power? Well, one way is he came to tell us the truth so that the truth can expose the lies. But the other way he did it, you'll see here, is if you jump down to verse 17. Speaking of Jesus, he says, For this reason Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, he had to be fully like us, right, on the picture, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God and that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I don't know what version you're reading there in, if you're reading an English Bible. Uh, yours might not say propitiation, but that's probably the, the best literal translation of the word that's used there. Propitiation, to propitiate somebody is to turn away their wrath by offering a gift. Turn away their wrath by offering a gift. So, well, you've really annoyed your parents, you've done something that they're really frustrated about, and you decide, out of the goodness of your heart, to clean the kitchen. And you clean it all up, and they walk in, and it looks great. You've Look, you've engaged in propitiation at this point, right? You've tried to turn away their just anger by offering of a gift. Maybe you should actually just tidy up more often, actually. Maybe it's not such a great gift. But anyway, that's what propitiation is, to turn away anger by offering a gift. Jesus propitiates his Father's wrath towards us. Jesus propitiates his Father's wrath towards our sin by offering of himself, by dying on the cross. He dies the death that you and I deserved. He propitiates his father on our behalf. And I love the way that the writer to the Hebrews describes that here. If you go back earlier in the chapter to verse 9 again. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What does Jesus do? He tastes death for you. This is your salvation story. How are you not going to face the full weight of God's wrath against my sin, your sin? How are you not going to face that? Because sitting there is that cup that only you deserve to drink, the cup of God's wrath against your sin. But Jesus tastes death for you. He tastes it for you. That's the salvation story. That's the grace of God to you. So that you and me, by the grace of God, not by any worth of our own, can join him in being crowned with glory and honour. That we might enjoy this trajectory. That's the salvation story that he has done by his grace, out of his great love for you. Uh, this week, this week, last week, last week I was um, in the car, flicked on the radio and a pod, uh, sort of a podcast came on. Um, it's from a thing called Conversations, which is on ABC. And I don't know if you've ever, anyone ever listened to that? It's very popular as a podcast in Australia, even amongst trendy young people like yourselves. 
Let me tell you a little bit about the one that I heard. Um, this wonderful lady's name is Caro Llewellyn, and her dad, I'll give you a bit of backstory, her dad, Richard, was struck down with polio at age 20. Hand up if you're 20. Yeah, hand up if you're soon 20. Hand up if you've recently been 20. Pretty much it's everybody in this room, right? Point is, it was your age. He was, he worked for the Navy, had a pretty active, had a very active, busy life, and he was struck down with polio at age 20. Before Caro was born, this is what happened. So her whole life, her dad was in a wheelchair. He went from being in the Navy to being largely immobile for the rest of her life, the rest of his life and for all of her life that she knew him. Caro's testimony is that her dad was remarkably optimistic and positive about his situation and he refused to let it curtail his life. He had kids, you know, he got married, he had kids, he enjoyed relationships. But one day, when Caro herself was an adult, something terrible happened. She realised she had no feeling in her own legs. Now, aside from being a terrifying experience, this was really confusing for her because of how her dad had always said that nothing bad would ever happen to her because so much bad stuff had happened to him. Let's listen to how Caro explains it. Turned out that Caro had come down with MS, multiple sclerosis, a disease that has now impaired her own mobility, much like her dad. And the conversation in this podcast is actually a remarkable story of how Caro, like her dad, has not let the MS impede her career or getting on with life, and it's worth listening to. What stood out for me as I was listening to it, knowing that this week we'd be looking at this chapter of the book of Hebrews, was the way her dad had sought to comfort Caro and her siblings about his own illness. You might have caught it there. He said, well, she said, we were told we didn't have to worry about anything bad physically happening to us. Nothing bad physically would befall us like it had befallen him because he was our fall guy. He took the fall for us. He'd taken in 
He'd taken in um, his own framing a karmic hit. He said, I've soaked up all the karma so that you won't experience anything bad. Well, if you like, in the language of Hebrews chapter 2, he's really saying, I've tasted physical suffering for the rest of my family. No one else will need to experience this. It is um, a beautiful idea, actually, at one point, that they would all be safe because he's tasted it for them. But sadly, that's not how the world works. There is no karmic equation that you and I can balance out with each other to take the bad stuff from one another. But the testimony of Hebrews chapter 2 that we've just looked at is that there is one person who genuinely is your fall guy, who can take the hit for you, for me, and does, and has. The Son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his being, he comes down and by enduring the suffering, shares in our humanity so that by the grace of God, as he endures death, he tastes death for us. Does that mean that you won't die? No, as a reminder of our frailty, of our sinfulness, we will all surely die one day. There's no doubt in 150 years, none of us will be sitting here at the EU public meeting. But God willing, it'll still be going unless Jesus comes back. But we, we will all be dead, won't we? So we know we will still die, but you know what he's done by tasting death for us? He's taken all the terror out of death. Death has no more terror for us if we trust in Jesus because he's tasted its bitter consequences for us. Uh, Caro goes on in the podcast to share the experience of talking to her brother about her diagnosis. Let me play this next bit for you. Perfectly understandable reactions, I think, from both Caro and her brother at that point is the way they try to um, talk with each other about this terrible news about her MS. But of course, the reality from Genesis chapter 3 is that we're all under a curse for our universal rebellion against God, for rejecting his word and his way, for refusing to listen to him as the one true living God and Jesus his son. The curse that we are all under is death. No matter how well and healthy you are today, or no matter how sick and struggling you are today, no matter how educated and wealthy and successful you are or may be, no matter how disadvantaged, impoverished or rejected you may become, you, me, everyone on this planet, we are all under a curse. 
the curse of death, because every single one of us has sinned. There are no winners and losers when it comes to death. We just all lose, except that Jesus has grabbed that cup and tasted death for you. He has made propitiation for your sins. He has opened the way to salvation for us from suffering and death to glory and honour. Whoever turns into Jesus in trust and repentance is freed from this slavery to the fear of death because they know they are destined for glory. Uh, Caro's dad passed away before she got MS. And right at the end of the interview, Caro was asked, did she wish her dad had been around so she could talk to him about what had happened to her, gained from his experience? This is her answer. Understandably, Caro wouldn't want her dad to see the daughter he loved suffering in the same way he did. And as she says, he would have been broken-hearted and furious on her behalf. And yet Jesus, who did taste death for us, he is alive. And that is a great thing. Because in this case, he is no longer suffering as we do. He's been raised in glory. He lives today as our merciful high priest who can actually sympathise and help you in your weakness. Because he, as we're told, suffered when he was tempted. He knows what we're going through. And so, in verse 18 of the chapter, he is able to help those who are being tempted like you and me. There's a moment in the interview on the podcast where Caro is asked whether she felt alone when she first got her diagnosis. We're never alone. We're never alone. Because Jesus is our merciful high priest who lives in glory to help you. But there is something deeply right in the way Caro imagines her dad's response, right? Brokenhearted and furious to see the one he loves suffering so. It's right, I think, because it is actually a reflection of Jesus' heart towards us. When Jesus sees Jerusalem in the Gospels, knowing how caught up they were in sin and suffering and facing judgment and death, he wept for them. He was brokenhearted. And the picture in Revelation is of Jesus as a great warrior, taking death and casting death itself into the fiery furnace. He's furious at sin on our behalf. He's furious at the reign of death and the slavery it has us trapped in. He's brokenhearted to see us, those he loves, suffering under the lies of the evil one. But the good news of the Christian gospel, which we've been reminded of, I hope today, 
is that he has done something amazing about this. He's tasted death for everyone. He's opened the way of salvation to glory through his own death and resurrection. He's the author, the the original writer who writes out a path to salvation for you if you trust in him with with, with your faith and repentance. There's a line in the interview where Caro described how her dad would say, go off, live big, sorry, go off, live big lives, be bold, because you're safe. Sadly, that last part wasn't quite true. But when you understand the real safety, the eternal safety, that you have in Jesus as one of his sisters or brothers, with glory awaiting, no matter how much the suffering now, with glory awaiting, then his advice is actually pretty good. Go off, yes, go off into all God's world. Go to the very ends of the earth. What have you got to fear? Your salvation story has been secured in Jesus who tasted death for you. So go off to the very ends of the earth. Go off to all the less reached and less resourced places that need to hear the good news of Jesus. Live big lives. Yes, live big lives to God's glory, not your own. Make those radical decisions for Jesus. Think about what church you will attend, where you will live, what job you will do. Joyfully sacrifice worldly visions of success and security. And be bold. Be bold for Jesus. Be bold for his gospel. Be bold in living his way in a world that thinks it's crazy. For there is a whole campus out there, a whole city, there is a whole world out there that is living in slavery through their fear of death. When Jesus, the author of our salvation, is now seated in glory where one day we will join him. So go off. Live big lives. Be bold. For your salvation is secure. Thank you.